got a question for you as we're kind of starting things off. Does anybody here hate moving? A couple of us. Moving is a whip, isn't it? It's really amazing. We've moved uh, six times, uh, Gina and I, since we've been married. We've lived a lot of places, a lot of times. Um, I always underestimate how much stuff that I have. I'm, I'm always asking myself, where did all of this stuff come from? Um, a couple of years ago, we moved down the street uh, in the same neighborhood, and I vastly underestimated what it would take to do that. I thought, we'll just save the money. It's not that far and shouldn't be that big a deal. Wow, worst decision I ever made. Took forever. What I thought would be maybe like two or three truckloads turned into like eight or nine truckloads. And I was coercing the interns at the church to help me and they really weren't that much help. Yeah. So I wised up. The last time we moved, we hired movers. Can, I, can somebody give me a witness? Real smart. Yeah, these poor souls, they didn't know what they were in for. I hired these guys. I was drinking lemonade, watching them carry all of the big furnishings and all the boxes and all that stuff. I was like, man, life is so good. These guys are sweating profusely. They're, you know, straining. Afterwards, they said, you absolutely have the heaviest furniture we have ever that we have ever loaded before. Where in the world did you get all of this stuff? And I was like, that's why I hired you. So, <clears throat> yes, it was great. The next day I woke up, my back was not hurting. All the furnishings were in place and life was good. You know, sometimes when it comes to our life, we get so used to doing the heavy lifting, it's hard to ask for help. And it's hard to let people come in and help us. Spiritually speaking, we should let God do the heavy lifting in our life. When we can't find a job, let God do the heavy lifting. When we're scared about the future, let God do the heavy lifting. When things aren't going like they're supposed to, let God do the heavy lifting. We've been in a series called Uncertain, Certain Truths for Uncertain Times, and in weeks one and two, we talked about the omnipresence of God, the fact that God is everywhere, the omniscience of God, the fact that God knows everything. And I want to wrap today up by talking about God's omnipotence, which means that God has all the power in the world. Did you know that today? There is nothing beyond the reach or the strength of God. I mean, God is that powerful. And if you ever wonder or ever doubt if God is powerful, look at the world that we live in. Look at creation. I believe that our planet and the universe is really one of the most beautiful indicators of the power of God. Yesterday I was hiking up at Beaver Creek just looking at the Rocky Mountains. I mean, unbelievable. Peaks, valleys, trees, water. Uh, Lakes, ponds, water, trails, grass, incredible. All the handiwork of the power of God. And the psalmist actually challenges us to look at the earth and remember the glory and the greatness of God and God's power. Um, the Bible has a lot to say about God's omnipotence. Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven: I am the Lord, 
the God of all mankind, is anything too hard for me? The implication is no. <laughs> Job 42.2, even when Job was in pain and distress, he said to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be set with me. Thwarted. Come on, that's a great vocabulary word. You learned a new word at church today. I love this. Job was in pain and distress, and he still said, God can do all things. Did you know you can be hurting today and recognize the omnipotence of God? And then in the Gospels, Luke chapter 1, verse 37, the archangel Gabriel reassured Mary by saying, with God, nothing will be impossible. God's omnipotence includes the exercise of his choice to use his unlimited power to reflect his divine glory and to accomplish his divine will. He does not uh, do things to just show off or impress people. He uses his power to magnify and to glorify the plans that he has for our lives. In other words, it's power with a purpose. God does not have power just to show off. God has power to fulfill his plans for our lives, for what he wants, for his purposes. And creation is a great example of that. Um, Ephesians 1.20 says, I pray that you will begin to understand how incredibly great his power is to help those who believe in him, the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. So God wants his power to be your power. God wants his power to take root in our lives in order that it can make a big difference. Now, that's pretty cool. I mean, think about it for just a moment. If God created the heavens and the earth, and God created every person that's here in this room and on this planet, and God says, I want that power to work in your life, we ought to listen. We ought to say, God, bring it on. Teach me. Show me some things. So I want you to take some notes today and write down these four things about God's power because there's not one of us here today that doesn't need the power of God in our lives. And the first thing I want us to see is that the power of God is enough to provide for you. Many of us need God's provision. God's provision comes through his power. Now look at 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. And so he's talking about provision. Notice he says there, so that in every way, always having everything you need. God is a God of provision. When you have a need, God wants to help meet that need. He's a God of provision. And there's two things about God's provision that we see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. One is God's grace. God gives us more than we deserve. And grace is getting what we don't deserve. Um, and secondly is giving. And the context of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is all in the context of giving. And Paul is commending the, the church for their generosity. And he's saying, listen, if you have a need and you want God to meet your need, it happens God's power operates through being generous. Now, it sounds kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? A lot of times we think, well, if I need more, I should keep more. But in God's economy, God says, if you will be faithful and you will give, then God will take care 
of your needs. I mean, it's crazy how that works out. It doesn't even seem logical. But he says, so that in every way, always having everything you need. And when you read the whole chapter, um, chapters 8 and 9, you see that it's in the context of giving. Faithful giving, tithing, bringing offerings is a beautiful thing to God. And God says, listen, if you'll be faithful to me, then I will meet the needs that you have. But back to the concept of grace. Um, the, the psalmist said in Psalm 23, 5, my cup runs over. And, and that's echoed here in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. He says, uh, and God is able to make every grace overflow to you. So God's provision comes to us by grace, getting what we don't deserve, and by giving. You know, a few years ago, we had a, a building project we were working on. We were trying to buy this building, and we were um, you know, doing a bunch of meetings and promotions and things like that. And a family pulled me aside after church, and they said, Pastor, we've been praying about this. We want to give $10,000 to the building project. And I said, oh, man, thank you so much. That's, that's, that's wonderful. Thank you guys for, for doing that. And they said, well, you know, it's a big sacrifice for us. It's a lot of money for us, for where we're at. But we really want to do it, and we feel God's leadership in it. And I said, amen, hallelujah. And they went home, and they came back the next Sunday, and they said, Pastor, you're not going to believe this. We told you last week we were going to give $10,000 to the building project. We went home, and this week in the mail, we received an unexpected check for, guess how much? $10,000. And we're just in awe of God's provision. And they brought that $10,000, they gave that to the building project, and then they continued to give the, the money that they had planned to give, they, they, they continued to give that well uh, 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 above the 10000 that they had pledged. But it was just such a great experience just to see God's great provision. I mean, listen, you may be anxious today about what you have or maybe what you don't have. But be reminded of this. God is a great provider. Your financial situation is not beyond the power and the strength of God. And when we experience God's grace and we practice generosity, God says, I will meet your needs. It's a great promise to us from Scripture. Um, Luke chapter 6 verse 38 says, give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together, to give room for more. Running over and poured into your lap, the amount you give will determine the amount that you get back. Uh, in other words, when, if I want God to provide for me, I give. And when I give, then I step into God's economy and God begins to bless and God begins to provide more. Um, we don't have more by hoarding what we have. We actually have more by being generous and by giving. This is the way God's power works. Now, Psalm 84, 11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield, and the Lord gives peace and glory, and he does not withhold the good from those who live with integrity. That's God's grace. That's his blessing. And when we walk with God and do the things that he's purposed for us to do, then his provision begins to flow. Um, here's the second thing. He's powerful enough to heal me. He's powerful enough to heal me. Um, Matthew 9, 27 says, As Jesus went from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. 
And when he entered into the house, the blind men approached him. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I can do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes saying, let it be done for you according to your faith. So two big things about God's healing power, asking and believing. And if you look all the way through scripture, Old and New Testaments, asking and believing are a huge part of God's healing power. There's just something about it. Now, these two blind men are calling out. If you look at verse 27, Matthew 9, 27, they're calling out. They're, they're making a ruckus. I mean, these two blind guys, they cannot see, but they've heard that Jesus is there, and they are making a commotion. I'm sure that the other people in the community were like, hey, can you guys pipe down a little bit? I mean, you know, come on. What's wrong with you guys? And they're like, no, we are not letting Jesus get away from us. And they're asking, have mercy on us, son of David. And they're not going to let Jesus out of there. I mean, they're, they're like asking. Jesus asked one question. He didn't ask, are you guys nice neighbors? Are you guys good folks? Uh, do you have money? What family do you come from? Um, can you quote some scripture to me? He asked, there, there was one criteria. He says this, do you believe that I can do this? I mean, do you believe? That's a powerful question. Sometimes we pray about things and we don't believe that God can do it. Have you ever done that before? Maybe you prayed about something and then you, you stop praying and you're like, I feel just as bad as I did before I started praying. The reason is we can pray and not believe. But when you put prayer and faith together, it's dynamic. It's powerful. So what are you asking God to do in your life? Sometimes we look around and say, well, God should just know, you know, I mean, come on, Lord, you know what, you know what I need. And he does because God's omniscient. Of course he knows, but he wants you to ask. And guess what? The people that have are the people that ask. The people that have are the people of faith, the people that are believing God. So we ought to be praying and we ought to be asking we ought to be asking. We ought to be believing. Uh, I love the story in Mark chapter 9. It's the story of a father who wants his son to be healed. And he says, uh, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus immediately challenged that. And the man cried out, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Verse 24. Uh, Jesus is like, do you believe? And he's like, I believe, but help my unbelief. It's kind of like this tug of war in this man's spirit that is all too familiar, isn't it? I believe. I don't believe. I think God can do it. I don't know if God can do it. I have good days. I have bad days. And we're torn. I believe. Help my unbelief. In other words, I kind of believe. I sort of believe. I would like to believe. I'm thinking about believing. And Jesus helps him. He asked for Jesus' help. And Jesus healed the boy anyway because the, because the father was willing to bring his unbelief to Jesus. And his unbelief turned into great belief. So God's able to heal. 
Asking and believing. Asking and believing. God is able to provide for you. God is able to heal. God is able to strengthen. God's able to strengthen us. I mean, the power of God is something that is very practical. Some of us just need some strength. Maybe you're weary today, worn out, nervous, stressed out. Maybe you feel, I, 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 don't, I don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes to get my job done. I don't have what it takes to be a parent. I don't know if I have what it takes to be married. I don't know if I have what it takes to take care of my responsibilities. If you've ever felt that way before, look at Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And the Apostle Paul wraps up his Ephesian letter with these words. Be strong in the Lord. In other words, our strength is not from ourselves. Uh, another passage, the Apostle Paul wrote that when we are weak, we are actually what? Strong. Yeah. Strong people realize that their strength is not from themselves. When you feel weak, that's when God's power can flow in you the most. When you are weak, you are you're strong. You're strong. When you're weak, you're strong. But he says, be strong in the Lord. In other words, that strength is not from myself, but it is from him. It's echoed in John chapter 15 when the apostle wrote, um, abide in the vine. Um, it's, it's what Paul spoke about in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, 18, when he said, be filled with the spirit. To be strengthened in the Lord is to be abiding in the vine, it's to be filled with the Spirit, and it's to be strong in the Lord. Now, I used to have a friend in high school that played linebacker on the football team, and he always loved to take his shirt off. And you know why he loved to take his shirt off? Because he had big guns. His biceps and triceps were bulging out. I'm not kidding. Everywhere we went, my friend Kevin was taking off his shirt. I'm like, bro, it's 32 degrees outside, you know? Take his shirt off. We, we, you know, we play basketball or football at the park, shirt off. We were at a, a, like a youth function with our church, shirt off. If the teachers would have allowed it, I think he would have gone shirtless to class every day. He just loved to take his shirt off. And the reason he loved to take his shirt off is because he had a lot bigger muscles than in, any of us other guys did. And he wanted everybody to see it. Wow. <laughs> Spiritually speaking, um, a lot of us are looking at our own biceps and triceps to determine our strength. God doesn't want us looking down. He wants us looking up. He wants us looking at him, at his divine power. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. He has mighty power. Man, we got to be recharged if we're going to be strong in the Lord. I'll tell you, a few years ago, my kids saved their money and they bought a Nintendo Switch. They were so excited. They, they just wore that thing out. They played like, it felt like 24-7. Nintendo Switch, Nintendo Switch. They played so much. One day, they were super upset. They came to, to my wife and they said, Mom, we, 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 we wore the game out. It's broken. And she said, well, you've only had it six months. And they said, yeah, but it won't work. So my wife is 
really a great troubleshooter. She got on the internet. She began to figure it all out. She checked to make sure that there was power in the wall and that it wasn't an outlet problem. And she plugged some other things in and there was power in the wall. And then she figured out a way to bypass the docking station to plug the unit directly in and it charged and the unit was working. So then she determined that the docking station was the thing that was not functioning properly. In other words, it couldn't recharge because the connection was not right. And we ordered a new docking station and everything was hunky-dory in the Heller household. (laughs) I think for us to have spiritual power in our life, we have to be connected. It's not a question, is there power? God has power. There's no question that God puts power in people like the unit. The question is our connectivity to Christ. And if we want to be connected, we've got to have that divine docking station. And God has given it to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. We've got to stay connected to Jesus. That's, that's what it means to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Strong in the Lord. Maybe your marriage is struggling. You know, God can give you strength to put, back, put a marriage back together. Now, I'm not telling you today that you can pray about something and snap your fingers and everything's good. Because a marriage is between two people. And if one or both parties is going a different direction then it's difficult. But I can also tell you this. Don't give up too soon because God is in the business of changing hearts and changing lives. We ought to be praying. We ought to be believing. And we ought to be trusting and asking God to intervene in our own lives. That's that's how marriages stay together. Next week, I'm kicking off a new teaching series called Fighting for Your Family. And I'm so passionate about what I'm going to be talking about next week because if you're going to have a great family, you have to fight for what you have. You have to fight for your children. You have to fight for your marriage. You have to fight for your sanity. You have to fight for so many things to have a family. And it's a battle. And you're in a battle zone. And one of the greatest areas that the devil wants to attack is the family because he knows that he can discourage you the most in and through your familial relationships. If things aren't going well at home, it's a lot harder for you to fulfill the purposes and the plans that God has for you. So that where does the devil attack? Well, he attacks the family. We have to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And it's that strength that's what's going to get us through the adversities that are before us. Um, Remember God's ability to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we could hope for or imagine is according to the power that's working within us. That's Ephesians 3.20. And and, and how, how is God going to do exceedingly, abundantly, more than all we could hope for or imagine? Well... He wraps it up by saying, it's according to the power that is within us. In other words, the power of God can flow in your life. 
It's the power of God that helps you break addictions. It's the power of God that gives you wisdom when you don't know what to say. It's the power of God that gives you physical strength to keep going when you feel like you can't take another step. It's according to the power that's within us. I think this is what Isaiah was talking about in chapter 41, verse 10. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. I mean, I love that verse so much. He says, first of all, just don't be afraid. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Uh, God's presence is with us. Don't be afraid. Don't get discouraged. Because when you get discouraged, you forget about the strength of God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my right hand. I mean, how many of us need to be held up? The right hand in Scripture is the hand of power and strength. It's the hand of battle. It always represents God's fortitude. And he says, I will hold you up with that victorious right hand. The way to victory, the way to comfort, the way to hope is to put your strength and put your faith in the Lord and his strength. He's powerful enough to provide for you. He's powerful enough to heal you. He is powerful enough to strengthen you. He is powerful enough to, check it out, save you. To save you. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. And you ought to underline that phrase, save completely. The question is, well, what does it mean to be saved? Maybe you've heard that term before. Or maybe you've thought, what, is, what am I being saved from? Well, to be saved means to spend eternity in heaven with God. It means to have salvation. It means to be rescued from hell and destruction and to spend eternity with God in heaven. To be saved. And we are saved through Jesus. Uh, God sent his own son. John 3.16 tells us to die, to rise from the grave. And by faith in him... We're saved. We're redeemed. We join God's spiritual family. But he says here to be saved completely. And I love that little term, completely, because sometimes we think that our salvation is kind of incomplete. It's, it's like Jesus Christ was the down payment for my salvation, but i got to fill in the gaps by my own self. You know, like Jesus kind of got me started, but now it's kind of all up to me to hustle to get into heaven. Look what he says. He is able to save completely. Our salvation is not by our deeds. It comes by our faith in Christ. It comes by being saved. Not by self. And so the question is, am I too bad to be saved? Some of us have done some things, you know, in our life. Maybe you were nervous to come to church today because you were like, if, if anybody knew the stuff I've been into, I would be so embarrassed. It's so bad. And I don't even know if God would want me to come to church. And as a pastor, I talk to people about their spiritual lives a lot. And, and, and people share that with me. And, and maybe some of you watching online or somebody in this room, you know, you think that. Well, 
I'm too bad to be saved. I got some really good news for you. God looks at your sin differently than you do. He does. He has a different perspective on your sin. We rank sins based on the severity of the crime. God doesn't say, I'll take all the liars to heaven, but I don't want the thieves. God's standard is different. Now, there are different consequences to different sins. That's true. If you shoot somebody or hurt somebody, the consequences for that is different from being envious. That's true. But in the sight of God, all sin is wrong and all sin separates us from him. So God doesn't say, I will take these guys, but I don't want those sinners. The blood of Christ can save all of us completely if we have faith. Am I too bad to be saved? Um, From the tiniest white lies to the most horrific ethnic cleansing, each is a violation of God's righteousness. And we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of God's standard of perfection. That's the bad news. That's the bad news, but it's also the good news. And the good news is that, am I too bad to be saved? The answer is no. God can forgive if you'll ask. Some people think, though, maybe I'm too good to be saved. You know, like, why would I need to believe in Jesus? I'm such a great guy. Sometimes we look around and we compare ourselves to our neighbors and we're like, thank goodness I'm not as bad of a person as she is. You know, we kind of think on the day of judgment that God's got some standard that's, you know, where, you know, God's going to say, well, why should you go to heaven? And you're going to say, well, I was better than my neighbor. You know, (laughs) let me pick the lowest common denominator and let me make myself feel really good about my performance. You know, I didn't do what they did. I'm not an adulterer. I didn't murder anybody. I don't steal. I mean, of course I should go to heaven. Come on, Lord. The problem is we never know how good we have to be. If you believe you're going to go to heaven because you're a great person, how good do you have to be? Nobody ever knows. You know what? Eternity is too long to be uncertain about our destiny. That's a long time. In John chapter 3, Jesus interacts with a man by the name of Nicodemus. He's a great guy. He's a Pharisee. And Pharisees in the ancient world, in the biblical world, were the people of the greatest ethic and morality. These guys loved and worshipped their own religious faith. I mean, they took the Ten Commandments of Moses and they came up with 613 rules to make sure that they didn't even get close to violating the Ten Commandments. Now, how could anybody even remember 613 laws? But the Pharisees did. They wore certain gowns that reflected their faith. They followed the law to the T. They made up rules upon rules upon rules to make sure that they never violated the Ten Commandments. These guys are the highest levels of ethics and morality. And when Nicodemus came to Jesus and he said, what do I have to do to go to heaven? Jesus said to him, guess what? You have to be born again. In other words, you have to get saved just like everybody else. Well, wait, I'm a Pharisee. 
No, you don't understand. Salvation for the thief and for the Pharisee is all the same. You have to come through Christ. There's not any mixture of your own achievements. You're not going to give your resume to God and say, God, look at all these boxes that I checked. Aren't you impressed, Lord? It's not about that. So am I too good to be saved? No. Everybody has to be saved. And you know what? Anybody that says they don't have sin doesn't have self-awareness. Have you ever lied? Have you ever lost your temper? Have you ever been envious? Have you ever judged somebody because you thought you were better than them? All of us have done those things. We've all sinned. And in the sight of God, all sin is the same. We all have to be redeemed the same way. And it comes by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Hebrews 7.25 is saying to us when it says, He is able to save us completely, those who come to God through Him, meaning Jesus, since He always lives to intercede for them. In other words, Jesus is praying for you. He's interceding for you. All that will come to God, He always lives to intercede for Him. Jesus is praying for us. Uh, James 2.10 says, "For, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. In other words, if you mess up just one time, God's perfection and His holiness cannot be in the presence of even one sin. Now, all of us have a lot more sin than that in our own life. But even one sin puts us in need of a Savior. And that's why God loved us so much that He sent His Son, Jesus. Notice it says, through Him. The only way sinful people can come into relationship with the holy God is through him. It's through Christ. God is so powerful. God is so powerful. He can provide for you. He can heal you. He can strengthen you. And he has the power to save you. Let's give up on the heavy lifting Let's give up on living uncertain lives and let's let God do what only an omnipotent God can do. Let's pray together. Would you bow with me for just a moment?